Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Evelyn Reisdyke, author of Shamanic Creativity. Evelyn discusses what led her to shamanism, the shamanic journey, how gratitude changes your brain, the homesickness caused by our disconnect from nature, and tapping into the radiant field of infinite vibrations. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Also, hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. Your support is truly appreciated. Evelyn Reisdyke is an internationally recognized shamanic practitioner and best-selling author whose titles include The Norse Shaman, Spirit Walking, A Course in Shamanic Power, A Spirit Walker's Guide to Shamanic Tools, The Nepalese Shamanic Path with Indigenous Nepali Jankri Bola Benstola, and her most recent publication, Shamanic Creativity. Evelyn is a founding member of the Society for Shamanic Practitioners and a presenter for international events such as the Shamanism Global Summit and the Year of Ceremony. She is an impassioned teacher and featured presenter for many global online programs and for over 30 years has delighted in supporting people and remembering their sacred place in all that is. Evelyn, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. Yes, well, I'm, I'm uh, very thankful for your time today, and I'm so looking forward to speaking with you. And I want to speak to you about your book, um, uh, Creative Shamanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, <laughs> um, you know, I come at all of this from a kind of academic background. Sure. And as such, I always like to define my terms. And I know that there is that shaman and shamanism can at times be a bit of a contested category. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do is start by asking you what, how do you define a shaman? What is a shaman and what's shamanism? (laughs) Uh, Easy question. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's great. First of all, you know, we in the West have kind of co-opted a term from Siberia. The, uh, the Tunga Siberian word is Sama, and uh, it means somebody who is uh, sort of on fire with um, that capability as a visionary. And I define a shaman as somebody who intentionally expands their awareness. I don't call it altered consciousness for a reason, and I'll explain that too. Yeah. Expands their perception to include that which is not typically Uh, accessible with our ordinary senses. And in that state brings back guidance, insight, healing, and whatever else is needed originally for survival when we were hunter gatherers. So I use a great example. Um, We went to try to uh, see the caribou migration in Canada one year. And the company that was hosting the trip had set up, you know, places where you could sleep and we'd be close to where the caribou came and well, the caribou took a completely different route. So that, that trip was canceled. I wound up going to see the, the grizzly bears that year. And uh, if we were on foot, if there were 30 or so of us on foot, and we depended on that herd to survive, we would be in deep trouble. 
where are they? We don't have helicopters. We don't, we don't have the capacity to climb high enough in the Arctic to be able to see where the caribou are. That would be one of the jobs of uh, the shaman to expand their awareness, to be able to perceive the direction in which to travel. In my mind, it's really a global phenomenon if you go back far enough, because at one point, all of us were hunter-gatherers, and we had to find our way in different landscapes as we migrated. So the medicinal plants would have changed, the food sources would have changed, the, where the water and shelter were available would have changed. So that kind of guidance would have been a necessary part of survival. And everyone has the capacity to expand awareness, but just as the person who got really good at napping flint probably got the job of making a lot of tools and arrowheads, and the one who is really good at making cordage probably got the job of making snares and nets, the one who is exceptionally talented at being able to not only expand their perception, but do it with intent and bring back information that was vital to the people. So that's how, how I kind of define both shaman and shamanism. It's that action of the person who is using a strong intent to expand their awareness beyond the limit of ordinary time space and ordinary senses to receive what is necessary to implement here. Okay. Uh, wonderful answer. <laughs> uh, wonderful <laughs> answer. Uh, Along these lines, though, I also am curious, what led you to this sort of shamanic path? Can you uh, speak a little bit about your history and perhaps training as well? Absolutely. So in my uh, early 30s, as many people do, I, I was a career person. I was in advertising, an illustrator and an art director, and I had emotionally hit the wall. Life was no longer fulfilling. The, the uh, tenor of the, of the industry had changed a great deal. And it felt like, you know, that feeling, if, you, if you've ever had any kind of depression, that feeling that the color is sort of drained out of your life. And uh, I realized in an acute depression that I'd been actually dysthymic for most of my life. However, I was in therapy, going to therapy twice a week. I needed some medication to be able to sleep at night. This was pre-Prozac days, but I didn't think I was getting better fast enough because uh, at my root, I'm still an impatient New Yorker. So <laughs> I, uh, I picked up a catalog for the Open Center, which is like many places. I'm sure Silomar has some online equivalent in California. Uh, Omega, those, those kind of places that have 101 different classes to um, improve your life in one way or the other, whether it be movement classes or meditation or whatever. So I, I'm flipping through this catalog thinking, you know, something in here might kickstart my, my uh, recovery. And I stumbled across Michael Harner's, uh, he was teaching the way of the shaman. And I had read his book in the eighties and fooled around with it a little bit, but Somehow I had dropped that thread. And I thought, well, sure, why not? So I took the train into Manhattan and uh, it was held in a dance studio. And I was still, you know, a wildly skeptical person, less so now. Uh, and there were 150 people uh, all sitting on the floor, which was peculiar to me at the time. And Michael 
started to uh, lecture to us and tell stories. And he's somebody who used to tell wonderful stories. He's deceased now. And we finally got down to doing our first journey. So now 150 people are lying on the floor with blindfolds on. And I thought, all right, you paid the money. Lay down. Let's do this. And my first experience of journeying had this effect. If you uh, have ever seen a cart horse where they have those blinders on so that they can only see the road ahead and they don't get distracted. Depression had that feeling to me as, as my, the feeling though that my vision, both internal and literal kind of vision had narrowed to a very small, small slice of life. My first journey gave me the feeling in my body that the blinders had gone. I, had, I felt possibility again, no specific possibility, which would have been nice because I'm a concrete person too. But just the feeling of like having that open up feeling. So I, I've said, whatever this is, I have to do more. I signed up for the very next thing they offered. I wound up studying with Michael and Sandra Ingerman was his assistant back then. I did three years with them together. Subsequently, I studied with uh, indigenous shamans, and it just completely changed my experience of life. So I'm, I'm grateful to all those players, you know, whether they be the Siberian shaman I studied with or Michael or Sandy, all these people that, that helped me to understand the, the um, we, the capacity we have as human beings, first of all, that it's such a universal capability and all it takes is really intent and practice to get good at it, that it is something that is one tool of others that can open us up to our full potential. And I love that because I think we need all of us that are willing to open up to our fullest potential because we have some serious global issues to deal with. And to have us more of us online is going to uh, be our best chance, I think. You know, getting people in all different countries of all different races, colors, creeds, religions to work together from that expanded space where all the compartments don't matter. You know, from that perspective, the, the compartments are, in, are uh, irrelevant. I also took the uh, Michael Harner's introductory way of the shaman course, uh -huh. and it sounds very similar. I did it up in San Francisco and it was at a hotel and there were like 100, 150 sort of uh, people involved. And I was curious because this is something I wanted to ask you about, and you sort of commented on this. So I'm going to be unpacking some of the things that you've just mentioned. Absolutely. But um you suggested that your first time of doing this journey, right? And I want to ask you a little bit for the audience, you know, what is a shamanic journey? Absolutely. Um, but personally, my experience was I had a very difficult time being in that setting. I was annoyed by like creaking chairs and everything. And it was just a weekend workshop, but by the end of it, the last day I had a very profound sort of visionary experience just through the drumming. Uh -huh. So I know that there is something to this, you know, it's something that I have personally experienced. Uh -huh. 
And so your first experience, was it a sort of visionary experience or was it more of that just feeling? Well, I tend to be a visual journeyer. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is. And it really doesn't matter if you're a visual journey or you're a, a, a more of a sensate kind of journeyer or you just hear auditory uh, input. The, the, the way we perceive is uniquely our, our own. Mm-hmm. So when I'm teaching, I always talk about how you perceive things because, you know, there are a whole slew of fabulous feelers out there, mm-hmm. you know, more so it's like, uh, it's like the last few decades, a whole lot of people who are very, very uh, deep feelers have been born. Mm-hmm. And so they come to this with an understanding of the suite of physical experiences and emotional experiences that they're capable of. And they bring that to the work. We, when one of the courses I took, there was a, um, a psychiatrist from upstate New York who worked with at-risk youth uh, using journeying. And uh, he says, I only hear my journeys. Hmm. And he says, as a psychiatrist, I can't explain to other people that I hear voices. That right, got me. Right, right. <laughs> but that's how I get it. And I, he says, I get kind of jealous the way the kids all get the images. But my partner is a feeler. And for over three decades, we have journeyed simultaneously on behalf of clients. And I get visual input. My partner gets uh, more kinesthetic and emotional input. And we've never had a discrepancy in how we we interpret what we've received. So I like to remind people that don't try to force yourself into something that's not you. Mm-hmm. Learn how you communicate with the unseen world, because that's going to be your strong sense. Right. And it, it, it takes practice, right? I mean, it's because I know that I could only have the experience after having attempted this several times over a weekend. And since then, I have gotten out of practice and I'll listen to shamanic drumming and I don't have that experience. And I think that I intuitively know that in order to have the experiences, I have to practice it. Uh, I have to do it more often. And one of the questions I had for you just in terms of the practice is, can, do you get to the point, is, is this where you are? I would imagine it is that every time you, however you engage in the journeys through drumming or rattling or whatnot, are you able to access um, this expanded consciousness? Yes. And so if I'm in a, in a complete snarl about something, you know, something's gone on and I'm, I'm kind of in my head about it and maybe a little, a little, uh, frustrated, then it takes me a while to make that transition. I, I think of, if you think about it, the physiological nature of journeying, which is moving into, you know, we used to designate the brain as sort of left brain, right brain, moving from that more linear way of perceiving into a more spacious, nonlinear um, way of perceiving. And then coming back to implement because the left, the the linear mind, you know, what we used to call being left brain is really good implementer, but it's really not good at uh, steering the ship, you know, because it it likes a particular pathway. It's familiar with it and it likes to stay on that. 
So I think of it that I'm sort of traveling intentionally using the sound of the drums to change my brain waves. And I'm moving from one side across the corpus callosum into the other side mm. to experience myself. And sometimes that takes a while. You know, it's rare, but there are times when I'm just so in a snarl about something. I'm, you know, say my partner's ill. What is my next step? That kind of thing. You've got a lot of uh, emotional investment that you have to sort of step down a little bit to allow. Mm. And I give myself a compassion around that because that's really a human thing. Mm. So the transition may take me longer. And if I feel like the transition's taking longer, I allow myself to savor the transition. Because I'm visual, I'm experiencing a kind of journey through a landscape, albeit, you know, a landscape of whatever my, my brain can use as that tool because we're wired for, our brain is wired for our sensory experiences. So the journey has that uh, quality that the mind can go, oh, all right, we're on, this, we're on this journey to go meet some being that'll support us. And then the, the part of us that would be, you know, tearing, tearing paper and being nervous can just go, oh, all right, I understand. So giving yourself permission to make the transition. You know, we, we live in a culture that expects us to switch gears very quickly. And in most cases, we do that. You know, we can go from one thing to another. If you're a, <clears throat> if you're a business owner, you know, you're flipping back and forth between the tasks that you have to do all the time. And this is something that is more organic. It's more the way we were wired a long time ago. Mm. And giving ourselves permission to take whatever time it takes, knowing that even though the part of us that gets restless and impatient is sort of thinking about how long this is taking, it's really not taking that long, mm. you know, because time sort of expands and contracts. We know right. that if you're doing something you don't like, it can really stretch. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I think, don't you write in the um, creative shamanism that, speaking about the brain that the more often you do this, it's sort of like rerouting the network a, a little bit. So it makes it easier. Well, anything that we practice where, first of all, you're starting something new. So you're building a new neural pathway mm -hmm. and a new neural pathway is not as robust as one that you've traveled a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's like, a, like a skinny little road in the, in the Hills, you know, and the more time you travel it, it becomes a superhighway. So it becomes an easier and easier task through practice, like practicing anything else. And that, that I learned actually from having brain injured clients. Because mm. people who have had a severe brain injury have to kind of detour, their brain detours around the injury. But those initial detours can get overwhelmed pretty easily. And people who have had a tra traumatic brain injury often can do most of what they've done before, but they don't have the cap capacity initially to not be overwhelmed. So if there's too much input or, you know, they have to do it in a hurry, they get frustrated and they lose the thread sometimes. So we have to take into consideration how we are as organisms, which again, we have done a really good job of trying to bypass all of that and run li our lives kind of with the joysticks up in our head mm -hmm. as if it were a video game. But this is, this is much more of a process of 
expanding into that part of us that I think of it as sort of touching all that is. We inside of our skin, we can kind of be isolated in some ways. We are we are paying attention to the information we get from our senses, which are glorious, but they're also really limited. Mm. We can only see the spectrum. You know, bees and what have you can see in uh, ultraviolet. Raptors can see infrared. We can only hear the tiniest band of sound. Our dogs and bats can hear above it. Whales and elephants can hear below it, you know, and so forth. Even thinking about touch, you know, when I bring my hands together, I can feel one hand is actually warmer than the other here. And I have that sensation of my skin coming together, but at no point do the atoms in this hand ever touch the atoms in this hand. It's an illusion spun by my nervous system to say that these two hands are actually touching. In fact, they don't even touch in this hand. <laughs> so, you know, we have to take the experience that we've had and then add to it this other experience, which to me feels like I, I have the best of both worlds. You know, I have the ability to savor the joys of being in physical form and, and the hard stuff of being in physical form, which I think is also part of life. And then also have this, uh, I like to call it the 30,000 foot view of what's going on. And you put that together and you're able to make, I think, better informed decisions about the steps you take. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like all of that. That's very good. I like the idea of the shamanic because you've kind of alluded to this. I see it as sort of our birthright in many ways to mm -hmm. explore consciousness and I think that it's been lost to us. And I think that it is not a mistake and it's not a coincidence that at this moment it is re-emerging in the world. I would completely agree with you. And yeah. I, what I love is, you know, at some point we learned in school that science and spirituality made this fork in the road and one went one way and one went the other way. Well, what we didn't realize is they actually went this way. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're now, you know, the the extreme of theoretical physics sure sounds like metaphysics to me. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, yeah. so there's this coming together of us, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, we had such a predominance on on the mind that we are now starting to bring it all together. The expansive part of us, those spontaneous extraordinary experiences we might have in a dream or with our intuition or, you know, all of that is starting to be put to, back together again, less compartmentalized. And I think that's excellent because the timing is perfect. Right, right, right. And I am going to ask some questions regarding this, but first <laughs> I have one more question in regards to training. And this is in regards to your other, one of your other books, the Nepalese uh, shamanic path. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, if, have you been trained in Nepalese shamanism? Is there a period there? Is there a question, yes, mark? Well, okay, question mark? Yes. Have you been trained in? <laughs> I have a, a wonderful friend who is a, Nep a traditional Nepalese Jankri mm -hmm. and, you know, oodles of generations behind him. And he's also very westernized too. He lives half his year in um, Italy, 
He has an mm-hmm. Italian wife. And uh, we hosted him uh, to come here and teach in Maine. And in that process, became friends. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, it, we saw him at a conference and, you know, just hit it off. He, he has all the wealth of generations of his ancestors embedded in his work. Mm-hmm. So I have a teeny weeny little slice of that. Okay. A teeny weeny little slice that I feel really blessed to have experience. I find when I have the opportunity to work with somebody who has a, a, a deep indigenous tradition, it, first of all, I recognize how much crossover there is. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, the names of the spirits are different. And yes, the ceremonies look different. In fact, they can look different from one shaman to the next in the same culture. But the the quality of understanding the the real and probably in quotes, but that real reality, which includes this reality, but it's that larger sense. And every one of the indigenous uh, shamans that I've been blessed to interact with and actually work with, they have the same thread that runs through their practice, which is gratitude. They are always making offerings and bringing that feeling of gratitude into their work, which in and of itself is healing. Mm. And they're, you know, one of the traditional roles of the shaman is basically to create balance and harmony in an individual, between individuals in the tribal group, between people and the rest of the species. It's always a matter of supporting that kind of harmony that, that encourages life in all its forms and to be in the presence of people who have learned that from from birth and are willing to help us as westerners you know uh reinstall good software you know you know and that that to me feels like a blessing and the that's probably the greatest thing that I've that I've taken from the practices that of these individuals that I've worked with is that deep focus of before anything comes gratitude. Mm. And that that is the thread. The other things you do are all come from that. Mm. And when you understand on a physiological level how gratitude changes your physical body and it is not limited at your skin. You know, if you know the work of the Institute of Heart Math, that feelings are actually contagious. You know, we're interacting with each other's feelings all the time. When you're in gratitude, you're antidoting the stress reaction you have. Your uh, hormone of well-being, DHEA, goes up. Cortisol and adrenaline go down. Your respiration slows. Your blood pressure goes down. And uniquely, in every one of your cells, the DNA actually relaxes into its perfect confirmation. Mm. Why we even care about that is the confirmation of a molecule. We know this from misfolded proteins causing disease. The confirmation of the molecule of DNA impacts how well it works. So if you want to have DNA that is very busy doing cellular repair and regeneration, you you want to be in gratitude as often as you can. And people who practice gratitude and this, again, they wouldn't use these words in a, in a tribal setting. Uh, 
But people who practice that deeply and live it as much of the day as they can raise their baseline of health and well-being, and they become what I like to think of as a healing force for those around them. Because it's hard to keep bringing yourself back to gratitude when we live in a culture that it is much more fiery and sometimes likes to wallow in negative, you know, and I'm air quoting that, negative emotions. You know, if you're, if you're PO'd at somebody, you want to stay angry and you feel justified to be angry. Or if you're afraid, sometimes you'll detour that into blame and shame and judgment and, you know, but we, we tend to sort of dine out on those things yeah. and to change that and instead live as much of our lives in that place of gratitude because we live in an extraordinarily beautiful place. Mm-hmm. You know, this closed system of our planet, like a terrarium, and we don't know what is really helping to keep that working. If, if you've ever tried to create a terrarium, you know, if something is just the slightest bit out of balance, everything in the terrarium dies to be in that place of gratitude where we're supporting our own organism to work well. And because our feelings radiate out uh, in the non-local field, uh, heart math measured two samples of DNA, a half a mile apart, held by somebody who was good at recalling feelings and the DNA in, in the test tube here, the DNA in the test tube, Uh, half a mile away, reacted simultaneously with no time lag. Hmm. So we are affecting that non-local field with our feelings. And as we develop intention, even about our feelings, we have the capacity to actually support the trees, the plants, the animals, and the birds simply by our way of being. Hmm. You know, and then if we take an action that comes from that place of gratitude, it gets amplified. And that, that's the kind of thing that excites me, that we have this capacity that is not that hard for us to step into, and it has enormous effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I was going to ask you about gratitude. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you beat me to it there. Um, uh, 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 the question I was going to ask was, how does gratitude help unleash creativity? Uh, but I also wanted to uh, mention that I had to ask about the uh, Nepalese shamanism because I've been to Nepal uh, a few oh. times. And the last time I was there was after I had taken the Way of the Shaman course with Michael Harner. I was staying at a guest house at a Buddhist monastery. And one day I was sitting out, uh, they had this like little front lawn area and I was sitting out there and all of a sudden I started hearing this drumming and I am, I know what that is. <laughs> I know what that is. And I think that, you just go, Whoop. <laughs> yeah. And it probably was a fault of mine. You know, I should have started knocking on doors, you know, saying, Hey, <laughs> um, uh, can you teach me? Um, but I think it was a house next door to the monastery that they were uh, doing shamanic training. So um, there's a soft spot of my heart for Nepal. Uh, so I had to ask about that. I, I was really fortunate to go there as well and and uh, meet several of the uh, indigenous shamans there. And it was really extraordinary. Yeah. yeah really yeah. extraordinary. And they, yeah. they have a, you know, that's, even though it's uh, seen visitors from the West since the seventies, late sixties, right, right. 
right. there's still a strong indigenous tradition there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope it, I hope it, that thread doesn't get lost because yeah. it's really quite amazing. Yeah. I'm pretty concerned about what might be happening there after the earthquake. Um, I just saw a couple months ago, a news article about a hard rock cafe opening up in Kathmandu. And I thought, there doesn't need to be a hard rock cafe in Kathmandu. And if you're a tourist, why would you want to go to a hard rock cafe in Kathmandu? Um, and it, what ran through my mind was this idea of disaster capitalism. Uh, and I was deeply concerned that Nepal may be losing some of what makes it so special. You know, um, I certainly want to allow them to develop, but yeah, um, I have. Can I? I want to add a little story to that because years and years and years ago, uh, we uh, hosted um, Puma uh, Kispe, Puma Sangona Kispe. He's a Peruvian shaman, uh, Paco. They call him Pacos, and he was just a kid then. He was like twenty-three years old, and now he's you know teaching for the Shift Network and what have you. He's a really, really dear guy, and. Uh, Somebody was saying how, you know, they're really sorry that, you know, there's internet cafes and all this, you know, the people going on and on. And and he was wearing a hat and you could see he tipped his hat down and he was, he was not enjoying the conversation. And he said, why shouldn't my people have the same things that you have? Right. And, you know, because the people kind of wanted that area to kind of remain like a museum that they could go visit, you know, like a, a restoration village, you know, like yeah. Colonial Williamsburg. Right. And uh, he said, why shouldn't we have all those things? And he said, why, why can't we bring our way of being into that mm. and to help change it? And the, the people were like, you know, because, you know, as Americans as Western people, colonialism is so ingrained into our history. Mm-hmm. People had to go, oh, right. Huh. Never thought of that. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's always a question. I mean, that this is a little bit off topic, but um, yeah, it's always something that I think about. And like I said, you know, I don't want to deny them their opportunity to develop. Um, my concern is people coming in and forcing things onto them, you know, like hard rock cafes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But I appreciate the comments that you've been making in regards to the environment and our ecological crises. And it's something that in your book, it's very subtle. It's not like you're hammering us over the head with it. Um, and you use a term that I really appreciate, which is the uh, solastalgia, uh, which is a, uh, I guess, like a homesickness mm-hmm. uh, caused by this environmental devastation. And it seems to me that I think you also comment about this, that we're, we're unbalanced, we're imbalanced. And I always see a connection between the imbalance within and the imbalance without. Mm -hmm. And one of the key features of shamanism, I think, is healing. Right. And we're going to have to heal the planet and heal the individual. 
I think the individual has to grow into the person who sees that they're, and right down to their toenails, feels their connection to the rest of the planet. Mm. You know, we're the only species that can think of nature as background. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't really deeply perceive ourselves to be a part of it. And that illusion is really our undoing. You know, we are part of the natural world as are all the other animals. You know, yes, we're, we think of ourselves as homo sapiens sapien. We had to say the wise part twice. Right. Uh, you know, we think of ourselves as, you know, these, um, these beings that have, you know, the ability to shape and have dominion over, over the animals and birds and plants and what have you. But we are part of nature. You know, we're these relatively hairless primates that have a big brain that has gotten us into some big problems. And we have to recall, you know, uh, there's a wonderful um, experience that people have in shamanism across all different cultures where it's uh, it's called a dismemberment, Mm. where you have this destruction in a journey of your ordinary body and it's rebuilt again by the spirits. So we need to be remembered. Mm. We need to be remembered inside because we are dismembered from the very thing that nurtures us and that we can support to be whole again. Mm. But in order for that to happen, we need to be remembered ourselves, recognize that we are, we are held fed, we, we drink and we breathe from the planet. We could not survive without, the, without intact ecosystems. And we have no idea who the keystone species really is on the planet. You know, is it going to be some al- algae in the, in the uh, ocean that causes the great collapse? Is it, you know, because we know in, in small ecosystems, it can be you take out a predator and then suddenly there are too many deer grazing the, the uh, foliage and the river then gets too hot and the fish can't spawn and on and on and on. Right. So there are eight, almost 8 billion of us. We have no idea. First of all, what our own disconnection it means to the ecosystem and whether in our, in our arrogance, we are already diminishing one of the species that's going to keep that terrarium whole. So we need to be remembered. That, that's the key thing. And, and it's recognizing not just that you're an, an, an animal like all other animals and with a brain that has wonderfully far-reaching thoughts and aspirations, but that you're also part of this intricate weaving you, you know, we don't know uh, the organisms that we inhale might be really critical to our health. We are starting to understand the organisms in the soil only just in the last 10 years, starting to classify the different organisms that are in the soil that make soil alive mm-hmm. and capable of growth. So we, we know a lot, but we know so little in how our planet works and how we can step into that in a compassionate, grateful way is ourselves to be remembered as, as parts of nature and that we have this 
non-local capacity. We are, we are woven into everything. All of the illusions that separate us are just the illusions of our nervous system. Hmm. You know, I see you somewhere else. So how can we possibly be connected? We're connected electronically, but my eyes are telling me you're far away. Hmm. We're, we're not, we're all part of that same collective consciousness of human being which itself is woven into the collective consciousness of all life on earth. Right. Is this the, uh, you write about, I think you call it the radiant field of infinite vibrations. Is this the source of all this connection? Um, because one of the things I'm thinking of is what you originally said was the shaman would enter into these, you know, expanded consciousness to find, you know, where the caribou are going to be or whatnot. And it seems to me that we need to do something similar now to put ourselves, to remember ourselves back with mother earth. Absolutely. That, that phrase, the radiant field of infinite vibrations is mine. Uh, The physicist. uh, Oh God, his first name just dropped out of my head. His last name is Cummings. Um, He calls it the sea of radiance and it's really the, the quantum plenum, Mm. which is light. Uh, not visible light necessarily, but the higher vibrations of light. And when I first heard this piece, which I think I put in that book, photons, which are particles of light, light expresses itself as a vibration and particles, which may or may not be true. It might be that we just perceive the particles of of the peaks of the wave. But two photons that don't have mass can come together in what a physicist would describe as 90 degrees out of phase, which I have no idea what that is. They come together 90 degrees out of phase and pop an electron into being that has mass. Hmm. And that same electron can wink back out again, and just be light. So, you know, if you put that into the viewpoint of creativity, we live in this incredibly creative cosmos that is always playing with, you know, like, like playing with the clay. It's like, mm. oh, it's light for a while. Let's make it into matter. Oh, what are we going to make out of it now? There's a kind of joyful exuberance about, about the, the cosmos that to me feels creative and it feels loving. Yes, things get taken apart. Like artists will take something apart and remake it into something else. And the same thing with somebody who is an identified creative in some other discipline. You know, there's a lot of working until you come up with something, right? So we live in that kind of a cosmos and recognizing that we're capable of all different kinds of change, changes of perception, and perceptions also begin to change our physiology. So you change to a gratitude mindset your physiology starts to respond. It's it's a challenge for us to think that way though, because we've been wired for the concrete world. So we have to step in to an expanded state of awareness to be able to perceive everything around the edge that's the real the real reality. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. It, I often think about how I think people in the Western cultures tend to think about creation as a one-time event, but 
the reality is that it's like you just said, it's ongoing, you know, and it seems like what we have to do is put ourselves into connection with that greater creativity. And know that we are both co-creators and also the clay that gets reshaped right, over and over right. and over and over again. You know, yeah. we are only here for a, the wink of an eye in, in cosmic terms. And how are we going to use the time that we have? Mm-hmm. Are we going to be doing, you know, some, some work for somebody else or, you know, following a path that somebody else created for us? with the hope of feeling secure, or are we going to explore the the depth and breadth of who we are Mm -hmm. to become kind of grounded in that larger sense of possibility, which to me, you know, that makes you feel, um, in my experience, it helps me to feel kind of more bulletproof. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm an eternal being in my physical form, although I'm sure my the elements and atoms are going to be endlessly recycled into something else. But I, I have this ex- experience of the sweetness of the moment to moment life that I have here while I'm in a body within this larger context of wonder of all the possibilities that my, my uh, enlivening essence, which some people call soul or spirit, you know, what's it going to do next? Who knows? Who knows? How is it? Is it just going to flow back into that light and be busy popping electrons and right, right, I don't right. know. Yeah. It seems though that there is a lot of resistance from people to open themselves to the flow of creativity. And I think also there's something within our culture in particular where it seems like imagination and creativity is kind of stifled. Uh, I often complain that I feel like my imagination has been colonized. And it seems to me that reclaiming our inherent creativity is something like a revolutionary act. (laughs) I I love, we could have several hours of conversation. (laughs) I absolutely agree with you. It's, um, I think that the issue is because the byproducts of creativity have become monetized. Mm. And so certain ones have uh, bigger price tags. And so they are considered the pinnacle. Mm. And so everybody else's creativity is like the, the poor people in the Olympics that come in 11th. They're very proud for their country that they, they were an Olympian, but they didn't get a, they didn't get a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal. Right. Mm. And so there's, there's less support for that. You know, I, I, as, a, as a little kid, my mom taught me perspective, just learned, teaching me to see when I was really small. I was an eldest child, and, you know, I think it was a game to play with, the, teach the kids something new, you know, <laughs> keep her out of trouble, teach something new. I, was, I had drawn the coffee cup that she was drinking out of, and she said, do you see the coffee in there from where you are? And it was like, no. She says, what do you actually see? Yeah. And it was like, to my little three-year-old brain. And that taking that and, and deciding that I really like to do that. I was a visual artist for the first half of my life. 
other people would say, oh, you're so creative because I could draw, you know, I could make a, a reasonable uh, facsimile of something that was three-dimensional in my world on a piece of paper. And I said, no, that's, I'm just copying what I see. And I practiced a lot so I could do that. And they went, oh, no, no, no. You're just so really creative. I could never do that. I can't even make a straight line without a ruler. And I'm thinking, well, I can't make a straight line without a ruler either. Hello. Uh, but that idea that creativity is somehow elevated beyond the ordinary person mm -hmm. is so diminishing mm -hmm. because it, it also eliminates people that have these leaps of creativity in solving everyday problems. Mm -hmm. You know, how does somebody with not enough money figure out how to clothe, clothe their children? You know, my father was a mechanic and he could build a car from the ground up. He was terribly dyslexic, but boy, was he good in the three-dimensional reality and being able to work with his hands. But that wasn't considered creativity, but me drawing something that I saw in the environment was, and it, it just, it, it, it never sat right. Mm -hmm. And I saw the kids around me in grade school who wouldn't draw if I was there drawing too, because it made them feel like they weren't good enough. Mm. And they just hadn't done the amount, the vast amount of practice that I had done. Right. So it, you're right. We've had it kind of enculturated out of us because of that monetary classification. You're good. You're bad. Um, nonsense, which is, it really is nonsense. It's not true. Your brain is wired for the same amount of creativity as anybody else. And just like, you know, we all have the same kind of muscles and bones, but somebody who really works on their physical body, it becomes very strong, mm -hmm. you know, or they can chisel their, the shape of their body into this, you know, statuesque kind of look because they've worked hard to do it, right? Creativity is like that. If we use it, we have more of it to use because I think of it's really like an energy, not so much like it's the skill that you, you know, you have, but it's this energy that's part of us as resourceful human beings. And if we use it, it can blossom and become a real support for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And, you know, it's, there's this devaluing of imagination as well, you know, that's just imagination. And I, I see imagination as being so central to shamanism because I remember something that Michael Harner said when he was teaching us how to do a shamanic journey. He's like, you have to use your imagination. And I think he described it. He's like, you know, the imagination is the gas pedal. Uh, it's the gas pedal for the journey. Carolyn Casey, who's a, an astrologer, says uh, imagination is what puts down the tracks that the reality train drives on. Mm. You know, you, you have to have, you have to have a vision of what you're going to do next, right? That's your imagination. Right. And as far as the way our culture does it, I think of it as Western culture slices the bologna ever thinner. So, <laughs> you know, the experience you have in dreams is all, it's going to be separate from imagination and separate from this and separate from this. And we're always making smaller and smaller boxes to file things in where tribal people don't do that. Mm -hmm. They have this place and the other place and you can get there through dreams and your imagination. 
you know, you can get there walking on a, on a path in the woods and all of a sudden you have this aha moment. That's, that's how we're designed, mm-hmm. you know? And when we, when we slice the bologna really thin, we take it all apart in a way that, um, that doesn't give us access. It's like we've put all these things behind firewalls, mm-hmm. you know, and we can't access them as easily when they're really, again, part of our birthright. Right, right. Yeah, and I really appreciated in your book how many activities you give people uh, to try to reignite that creativity. Uh, I know there's one in particular that I'm going to be uh, implementing. Cool. Uh, because I try to write and it's just this massive blockage. And there's been a voice for a while now that said, you know, maybe I should just start writing things out longhand. And then I read your book and you're like, write everything out longhand. <laughs> I, and the other thing is don't try it, Well, here's what I do. I do not write in a linear manner. Right. I write as I'm interested, different chapters. Mm -hmm. And then I figure out how it's going to be organized. And then I can string it together into a book. Mm -hmm. And when I'm all done, then I write the proposal for my agent. Right. Because until that time, I have no idea what that book's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, other people write outlines. My brain does not work that way. I need to have it be organic. Right. Give yourself permission to work the way you work. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because there's this idea of how, how artists do things, how writers do things. Follow your own way. Mm-hmm. You know, if you need to write a piece at a time and then get away from it and another piece at a time, who cares if it takes you 20 years to write a book? Yeah. If you're enjoying that process and you're putting in the time for something that you really feel excited about, as, as Bola would say, mm-hmm. what is the problem? There is no problem. Yeah. And that's good advice for anyone, I think, in terms of their creative process and their creative endeavors, you know, Um, is there, I know we're running out of time here, um, but would there be a exercise that you would be willing to share with the audience to kind of wet their taste a little bit? Something, if someone feels like, well, I'm not creative. Yeah. All this sounds great, but I'm really not creative do you have an exercise to that you think is beneficial to help get that spark going? I love to use, I do this sometimes with uh, myself, even I come up with a scenario and then I stop Mm -hmm. and then I give myself permission to write as many ways that that story could unfold. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, nonsense if necessary. So if you you folks want to indulge me, uh, imagine yourself sitting on a stone wall. You've, you've just become aware that you're sitting on a stone wall. It's uh, alongside a road. It's at the crest of a hill. So when you look out across the road, you can see that the landscape sort of falls away. You can see some things in the distance, mountains. And you're not sure how you got there. There is a car parked along the side of the road, but you know you didn't take that car because it's completely covered in vines. And there is a a sapling growing up where the engine used to be. And so you're you're sitting there and and paying attention. There's a great tree behind you. You're in the shade. 
And off to the left, again, you can't see the road as it falls away on either side because you're at the top of the hill. You hear bells. And you sort of turn and pay attention. You can see first the ears of horses coming. And eventually this brightly colored wagon is coming up the hill. And you can see that there is a, a, an old woman dressed as brightly as the, the wagon is painted with this hair that blows in the wind. It's like cotton candy hair. And she pulls up in front of you, slows the horses, leans across the bench and... <laughs> right. And then how many different ways can you write that story? And even if it's just a paragraph or yeah. say the story to yourself, right? you know, does she speak to you? Does she use language? Does she sing? Does she invite you into the wagon? I mean, there's all these potential possibilities. Yeah. And I love to try to make my brain come up with as many as I can when I feel stuck mm -hmm. because I've given myself in this, you know, and I love it when it's an unusual scenario like that. You just play with it. And, and when you are playing, suddenly all the stress is off it. Now you can do it. It's kind of like uh, I'm old enough to remember Mad Libs, where it was yeah. these uh, sentences that you had to, you know, come up with an adverb or, or a verb or an action word. At, to finish the sentence and you could do it in pretty ridiculous ways because you'd come up with the words and then somebody would read them and everybody would have a laugh. So it's, it's like that you become, you say, well, how, how, how could I tell that story? Why, why have I been sitting here? Who is that person? You know, you can play mm -hmm. and then feel that sense of your inside kind of, it gets excited about it. <laughs> so yeah. even if you read something or you watch the snippet of a movie as you're flipping around and tell the rest of the story to yourself. Mm. And yeah. to me, that is, is fun. It is like uh, mental, uh, uh, mental aerobics, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, I like <laughs> the it, idea of play. I was just thinking uh, we need to learn to play again. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Be like children, be like children, you know, and how creative work. they are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's probably where our salvation lies. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, because I've always been saying that what we need desperately is wisdom. Um, but after reading your book, I've changed that. It's like, we need wisdom and creativity. Yeah. I'll second that motion. All right. Well, um, we are, I think, uh, out of time, but let me ask you two final questions. Uh, one is what is coming up next for you? I am in the middle of narrating this book as an audio book, mm -hmm. uh, thanks to my publisher. So uh, the room I'm in now has this sort of portable audio studio as well. I'm uh, coming up with a new, new classes for this year. And I've also got a book underway on my, on my desk as well. So uh, I, I love being busy yeah. because, you know, when, when you uh, unleash, when you take your creativity off the leash, it wants to do a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I find that exhilarating. So it's like, go for it, creativity. I'm along for the ride. Yeah. 
<laughs> excellent. Excellent. Uh, the final question is where can people go to get more information about you and your work? Oh, you can tap into my website, spiritpassages.com. And it needs a bit of updating because I've been busy doing other creative tasks, but that's always a way to get in contact with my, uh, with me and also okay. the work that we do. Okay. I will put a link for that in the show notes and video description. And I'll also put a link for uh, uh, shamanic creativity or creative shamanism. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, Evelyn, it was an absolute joy to speak with you. Um, I thank you for your time. I'm deeply grateful for that. Well, and, and it's been a wonderful conversation. I had a blast with you. Okay, good. Thank you. You take All care. Right. All right, you too. And that's a wrap on episode 32 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. I also wanted to take a moment to clarify the title of Evelyn's book. I'm not entirely sure why I kept referring to it as creative shamanism throughout our conversation. The correct title is Shamanic Creativity. So all apologies to Evelyn for my error and deep gratitude to her for her understanding and graciousness in light of my apparently broken brain. That said, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast and my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.